0: My pleasure to welcome Tony Platt, who is going to be giving uh, the talk today. And Tony is currently a distinguished affiliated scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he's previously taught at the University of Chicago, at Berkeley, and at other uh, California state universities. He's the author of 12 books 100, and 150 essays and articles dealing with issues of criminal justice, race, inequality and social justice in American history. And I've been listening because lots of people have been coming up to Tony since he's been in the room saying you know, that they read his work and that they, or they, they met him some time ago, and I have to say I have one of these stories too, mm, which no. is that as a, as an undergraduate at the University of Western Australia in history, I set out to do my dissertation on a juvenile detention centre. Um and of course, one of the books that I read was *The Child Savers*. So, so it's actually very exciting uh, for me to meet you as well. And Tony's here today to talk to us about his most recent book, uh, which is called *Beyond These Walls: Rethinking Crime and Punishment in the United States*.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Mary Bosworth, for uh, the invitation and being here. Um, I'm glad to be here. Glad to see people who remember meetings with me that I don't remember, but maybe the, maybe the memory will come back. Um, and I'm glad you started on time. In one of the other rooms I'm staying here, there's a sign, and it says, for visiting fellows and researchers, please make sure that you observe rule number 11. So, I don't know what that rule is, but <laughs> we, we all need to observe it. Be nice to each other. <laughs> Thank you. So I'm glad to be back in Oxford where I spent three awkward years here from 1960 to 1963 begrudgingly studying jurisprudence because I didn't know what else to study. Um, and I'm especially glad that my college roommate is here, Jerry McCarthy, um, who we, we roomed together out in, in a house in Iffley, and um, he helped me to survive um, at Oxford in those years, as I wavered between scorn and longing, that's a phrase from Richard Hoggett's uh, famous book, The Uses of Literacy, he helped me to survive between, as I wavered between scorn and longing, scorn of the university's inhospitable reception of outsiders, I was from the north, I was from another country, from Manchester, um, and also longing to become a member of the club, that's the longing part. And now here I am entering the club uh, through the front door. It's a big surprise to me. In 1960, I was a typical 18 year old who did not think ahead and by default fell into a course in jurisprudence here at Oxford that mostly bored and alienated me. I'm sure those of you taking courses here come with a lot more consciousness and determination and clarity about what you're doing than I was. Aside from criminal and international law, I plodded through my studies and I chafed for three years against my tutor's reactionary view that law with a capital L is a defense against anarchy with a capital A. David Yardley was my tutor for three years. He regarded British legal institutions as the vanguard of a civilization that would erase all remnants of what he called jungle law. And doing his best to hold back the 1960s, he supported measures to keep hardened criminals, as he put it, permanently in detention. And anticipating the proliferation of today's refugee camps, he thought that detention communities might be a way to keep the criminalized family together, and that bringing back the stocks might even be cheaper than prisons. I can send you the documentation in his book if you're interested. He also was begrudgingly against the legalization or decriminalization of homosexuality on the grounds that, quote, it might encourage many homosexuals to seek medical treatment. So that was my intellectual experience at the university. Aside from sports, uh, art house films at the Phoenix, which still exists, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Bergman, Goddard, Mm -hmm. big, big impact on me. Aside from that, and jazz, learning to become a marijuana user and going to ban the bomb demonstrations, one of my few educational pleasures was going to a lecture by Richard Hoggart, who was considered to be the founder of of British Cultural Studies, who taught me the importance of what later would be known as history from below. While my tutor was worrying that the eight-hour day might tempt workers to while away their time off by, quote, doing harm to others, Richard Hoggart was describing law as an arena of class conflict, of us against them, of them against us. And from the perspective of working class communities in his 1957 book, he briefly reported that the police and criminal courts were part of, quote, the vast apparatus of authority which somehow got hold of them, got hold of working class people. Vast apparatus of authority which somehow got hold of them. In that book, he didn't explain the somehow. I moved to the United States in 1963 for what I thought would be a temporary stay for a master's degree in criminology at Berkeley. And after a postdoc in Chicago, I returned in 1968 to teach criminology back at Berkeley. It was then that I started to think about the issues in this book that I finally got to write uh, recently. Uh, I thought started thinking about them in the 70s because that was an era of, of American society when in the words of Alice Walker, the writer, uh, the social movements called us to life and put us to work. It was a very enlivening time to be an intellectual activist. And when the movement in universities was powerful enough to attract police informants to our classes in Berkeley School of Criminology. So when I got my FBI file, I read that I was very anti-police, I was a dangerous individual, and that I was, quote, one of the first people in the United States to wear my hair long. <laughs> curious what you find in your FBI phone so I started thinking about the issues in this book, of this book in the 70s and I finished it in the gloom of Trump's dystopia I like to think that its seed was planted in Hoggart's insight about the class nature of policing, that this is where I began to grapple with explaining the somehow, as in the vast apparatus of authority which somehow got hold of them, that Hoggart briefly referenced in his 1957 book. I know it was Hoggart's successor, Stuart Hall, who helped me to fill in the gaps. Despite Trump's dystopia, as you can see from the book's cover here, which I'll pass around, um, there's a sliver of thin sliver of blue sky on the cover. you know we had debates with the publisher about how big that little strip of blue sky should be, but it 's there enough to be you know to give a, a ray of hope. Um, I was recently on a um, a panel at a book fair in the San Francisco Bay Area, Bay Area with a man named Albert Woodfox, um, who has a new book out, which I strongly recommend called solitary. Um, there's been a lot of great memoirs of life in prison that have been written really since the 19th century, and um, some of the most famous ones, including Malcolm X's autobiography, Claude Brown's autobiography, Peary Thomas, there are a few standout ones, but I put this one by Albert Woodfox um, to be up there at that level. Um, he spent over 40 years, I think it was 42 years, and he knows exact months and days and hours, that he spent in solitary, 23 hours a day. In the notorious Angola prison in Louisiana, for a crime he never committed, which was uh, he, he was set up and charged and convicted of killing a guard in the prison, which he didn't do, and it took about 10 years of, of activism by lawyers and political organizations and nonprofits and people helping him to get a new trial and to get an acquittal and to get out. Um, In this book, uh, Solitary, he he writes as follows. He says, I bear the scars of beatings, loneliness, isolation, and persecution. I am also marked by every kindness. And in this book, he says, I have hope for humankind. This is after doing the 42 years in solitary. So if Albert Woodfox can have hope for humankind, I certainly can too. So today I want to address uh, three issues. Uh, What in the past gives life and vitality to Trump's vision of law and order? What is new and dangerously different about his vision? And what are the chances for a revitalization of a progressive and radical visions of social justice in the United States? Three big issues, and I'll try to go through them fairly quickly here. Um, So first of all, what's familiar? Trump's law and order is fierce and uncompromising, but much of it, I think, and argue in the book, is recycled. For all that has been said about his mercurial and narcissistic temperament, His impetuosity, his grandstanding, his wild policy swings, his views about crime, police, prisons, welfare, and race are remarkably consistent and longstanding. In many ways, Trump's version of law and order has deep roots and a bipartisan political foundation from the Democrats as well as the Republicans. Trump honed his particular version of law and order in the 1980s. His favorite crime expert, to use his words, uh, was the right-wing political scientist James Q. Wilson, whose 1977 book, Thinking About Crime, influenced hardline policies in the 1980s and far beyond. And his notorious essay on broken windows, co-authored with George Kelling and published in The Atlantic in 1982, legitimated a repressive role for policing in impoverished communities that influenced policing in the United States and in many other countries around the world for people not familiar with this uh, policy proposal that became widespread, um, uh, Wilson argued that um, if you allowed sort of petty crimes to go on in in impoverished communities, that they would uh, aggravate and become serious crimes, and that broken windows, you know, peeing on the ground, getting drunk and disorderly and so on, that that needed a police presence, otherwise it would get out of hand and so on. And that justified... um, uh, an interventionist role for policing uh, in the United States, sort of trying to legitimate the role of the police in impoverished communities. They didn't take that position about uh, intervening in middle-class communities. So it became a, a really a strategy of, of legitimation of policing uh, that I think had um, had wide influence. Most of the ideas in Trump's 2000 ghost-written book called America, The America We Deserve um, Um, Early on, he's he's got political ambitions. He's writing op-eds, he's writing books, he's putting out statements and so on. That book was cribbed from a briefing book co-authored by the Right Wing Heritage Foundation, um, which was written for right-wing political candidates. Um, He lifted a lot of ideas also from a man named Edwin Meese. Ed Meese had been on Trump's transition team, Before that, he'd been attorney general under Reagan until he went through a scandal and had to resign. And before that, he was um, uh, Governor Reagan's right-hand hatchet man in California, uh, where he presided over the the beating and arrests of uh, demonstrators around the state, and he also presided over dismantling Berkeley School of Criminology, where I and other people were teaching. And so the wheel turns. While Trump draws upon old tropes for his ideology, he has always positioned himself, I think, in the extreme right wing of law and order politics. So, for example, in 1989, um, there was a a major case in New York. uh, Some of you may be familiar with it. It's called the Central Park Five case in which uh, five young men, all men of color, black and Puerto Rican young men, juveniles, were uh, charged and prosecuted and convicted of an extraordinary brutal rape on a white woman banker who was jogging through the park and barely lived and had very little, had no memory of what had happened to her. And the five uh, confessed and were convicted and spent many years in prison before somebody else confessed to the crime. Um, And they were all released after several years in prison. And then the city of New York settled with them for about $41 million for the false arrest and the the time in prison that they'd served. Trump then uh, wrote an op-ed in one of the New York newspapers saying settling doesn't mean innocence. And he basically argued that his contacts in the police department said that they didn't deserve to have been acquitted. The mugging of his mother in 1991 added personal animus to his political convictions. He and other members of the family lobbied the judge to make sure that the person that mugged his mother did a lot of time. And in one of his books, uh, he said, the problem isn't that we have too many people locked up. The problem is that we don't have enough criminals locked up. So from very early on, he's staking out a a right-wing law and order position. Uh, I wouldn't say he was reading anything because the man doesn't read, but he's being influenced by a set of ideas that are in the extreme right of the Republican Party. And in 2000, when he was actively considering a campaign for national political office already, uh, he praised uh, a man named George Pataki, who was running for uh, governor of New York, uh, for his efforts to restore the death penalty in New York. New York had put the death penalty on a moratorium. Uh, Pataki uh, said Trump um, in, in one of his book. In one of these books, said, uh, Pataki is doing civilization's heavy lifting," and I think that's an early sign of the coded language um, uh, of the kind of right-wing white nationalism that is now a staple of his worldview. This notion of of um, law and order being at the at the at the centre and the and the, the leadership of of establishing uh, by civilization. He's talking about a. A Christian white worldview. And he's always, always been partial to fascist ideas. I'm not one of these people who argues now that the United States is, that we now have a fascist regime. But Trump has always been interested in fascist ideas. So a long, long time ago, he was uh, describing the United States as the world's whipping boy, that's his words, and uh, that the United States had become China's punching bag, uh, thus launching his attack on China now. And and, and bringing the world close to a, a military conflict with China, which of course would be, there'd be no more nice talks in this room if, if that happens. Um, his politics of American first, America first, which is a big part of his political slogans, comes right out of right-wing American nationalism that had its heyday during World War I when um, the U.S. had to uh, whip the population into supporting U.S. entry into that war and when people that opposed the war were uh, picked up and charged and sent to prison. Um, the America First was the, was the, was the slogan of that, of that campaign for war. His preoccupation with Mexican inferiority, which uh, influences him a great deal today, um, and Mexican dangerousness echoes early 20th century moral panics about Mexicans and marijuana. It also echoes the 1940s campaign against so-called zoot suitors in California and also echoes the demonization by the FBI of Chicano political movements in the 1960s. So there's a great deal of continuity between Trump's law and order agenda and previous administrations and there are some significant changes as well. But first let me go into more detail about what I think of the continuities. First, I don't think there's any change in militarized policing in the United States that is routinely indifferent to human rights in impoverished communities and reduces citizens and residents to objects of fear and loathing. The police routinely kill three people every day, which maybe doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a 1,000 a year. That's 100,000 in a century. And that happens during the everyday practice of policing. It doesn't happen during the extraordinary moments of, of, of um, state repression in the United States, which actually are not so um, are not so exceptional. And the people that get killed by the police on the streets are disproportionately African-American, Latino, Native American, and also a high percentage are also mentally ill. So this was true long before Trump, and it's true now. A deep history, for example, teaches us that the police and sheriffs were deeply implicated as participants and collaborators in lynching and doing their best to hold back the civil rights movement for decades. Um, Go back to early descriptions and reports on policing in the late 19th century right through to the 1960s and then a new bout of of, uh, police repression in the 1960s. There isn't a decade that goes by where the police are not at the forefront of trying to repress civil rights struggles. So much so that in 1951, long before the current round of political protests about policing in the United States. In 1951, the Civil Rights Congress petitioned the United Nations for relief for what it called, quote, acts of genocide against the Negro people. The Congress said, once the classic method of lynching was the rope, now it's the policeman's bullet. That was 1951. Or in the 1960s, James Baldwin, who was one of my favorite writers and I think one of the most perceptive writers on issues of crime and race and policing, His essays, I think, uh, particularly from uh, The New Yorker, uh, are well worth a revisit if you've never read them. So in the 1960s, he said he hardly knew anybody in Harlem from the most circumspect church member to the most shiftless adolescent who does not have a long tale to tell of police incompetence, injustice, or brutality. That's Baldwin in the early 60s. These are exactly the same issues that Black Lives Matter has been raising in the last decade in the United States. So one of the things I argue in the book is that there never were never good old days when the friendly urban police walked local neighborhoods that they knew personally and made crime reduction a priority. I don't think there's any evidence that, 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 that American policing was ever about that. So I'm not making a case for some nostalgia to go back to an earlier day of professionalization. I don't think that ever existed. Policing in the United States, I argue, has always been militarized, combative, and undemocratic. Long before SWAT teams, long before the transfer of of Iraqi war surplus to the police, the police always imagined themselves at war at home. And they were often inspired in the notion of being at war at home by U.S. military ventures around the world. Um, Michel Foucault somewhere talks about this as the boomerang effect, that military ventures abroad are then brought back in a variety of different ways. So I'll I'll give you two examples in the United States. For example, now in in Baltimore, um, the police use surveillance techniques that were developed uh, in the war in Iraq. Or I think a more important example would be the way in which um, policing in other countries um, develops notions about dangerous populations and who needs to be targeted by uh, military and, and counterinsurgency operations. So if you go back to the United States' first military venture, which was in the Philippines in the 1900s, after the war with Spain and the defeat of Spain, Uh, The United States then stayed in the Philippines for, I don't know, 10, 20 years, um, trying to subdue a nationalist movement that wanted independence, that won independence from Spain, and now they wanted independence from the United States. So it was there that the United States first developed what they called reconcentration camps um, that were influenced by, I think, by reservations in the United States that brought together political activists and political dissidents and put them in prison-like conditions. And also there were people working on counterinsurgency in this war in the Philippines who then came back and were very influential as leadership in the early days of the American Federal Bureau of Investigation. I don't think the police have ever been effective at reducing social harm either. Um, How many people here in England rely on the police for advice about how to protect yourself from social harm or Call the police when you're in any kind of trouble and witness crimes or whatever. Please raise your hands. Oh, there's usually one or two. So what are they good for? Um, um, So law enforcement, in my view, and crime control are not what the police do well. And we're told in the United States, and you're probably told here as well, that the best way to reduce our chance of being victimized by crime is to learn techniques of target hardening. Is that term used here? (laughs) Yes, target hardening. Make ourselves into a harder target, okay? And if you can afford it, buy an insurance policy and create a whole defensible space around your home. Burglar alarms, high-tech surveillance systems, bolted doors, guard dogs, razor wire, gated walls. Depends on what you can afford the police even acknowledge their impotence when they advise us to organize neighborhood watches look out for suspicious folks and if you're a woman carry a whistle and mace take martial arts classes stay off the streets after dark in other words take personal responsibility and good luck so no wonder that most people do not and have never not and have never reported most crime to the police A deep history also teaches us that the federal government and federal agencies from the the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover to Homeland Security today in the United States constantly send out messages about who is on the dangerousness watch and who are the suspect populations. So there's often... um, um, a sense in the United States, for, particularly amongst political activists dealing with police issues, that the problems of policing is a local issue and that it's not a national issue, and therefore you can it's more easy to organize uh, against undemocratic police practices because it's local. I think there's a problem with seeing policing as a, as a local problem. Um, if you look at the history of the United States... Um, we understand that the police get their ideas and marching orders from Washington, D.C., from the national government and from national agencies about which populations are criminogenic, which populations are a threat to national security. So, for example, after World War I, J. Edgar Hoover, in a public um, piece that he wrote, blamed the African-American press for promoting what he called defiantly assertive ideas about the Negro's fitness for self-government. This was after World War I. They're moving too fast. They want democracy too quickly. A position he took for decades while heading the FBI. And some 50 years later, Hoover authorized his agents to send anonymous messages to Martin Luther King to encourage him to commit suicide, otherwise they were going to spread the news that he was um, having an affairs and the, keeping them from the public. In the 1960s, an FBI agent proudly reported to his boss in Washington, D.C., that every single African-American student at Swarthmore College, a liberal arts college, a private college, was under police surveillance. So no wonder cops on the local level equate blackness with dangerousness. So I argue in the book that the problem of police violence is endemic and systemic, national as well as local. That was true long before Trump, and it's true now. There's also nothing new today about the astonishing cruelties that characterize day-to-day life in jails and prisons, including widespread use of solitary confinement and sensory deprivation, sometimes for decades, like Albert Woodfox, the author of of Solitary. Um, There are many people that I've personally met who've done 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years uh, in solitary. I know one person who did more than that. The UN standards on uh, human rights in prisons uh, argue that uh, put out that anything more than 14 days in a solitary confinement puts you at risk for mental harm and health issues. Um, So we also have have in the United States, there's about 2.2 million people incarcerated every day, and of those 200,000 are lifers. That is, they have no chance of getting out for the whole of their life. And um, I think most places in in Europe, in the West, put limits on I know you have lifers, right, but it's, it's very, very limited. Uh, 200,000 out of 2.2 2 million It's a sizable number of people. It's good news, for example, that in California, the new incoming governor of California, uh, Gavin Newsom, has just put a moratorium on the death penalty, and that will last as long as he's governor for four years, unless the legislature makes it permanent. But he did uh, dismantle the, the death cell uh, where they do the executions. He ordered that totally dismantled. So there's a good chance that that's going to happen. But there were 800, there's 840 people on death row in San Quentin. Uh, they were waiting execution, and now they're there for life. So now the, the larger issue is what does it mean to have people really have death sentences by being in prison all their lives. So on a daily basis in the United States, there's close to 7 million people are in jail and prison or on probation and parole. Um, One in every 28 children now has an incarcerated parent whose family is built as much as $25 for a 15-minute in-state call, and 30% of the world's incarcerated women are now in the United States. you know the data on, on the argument about uh, the United States having the highest incarceration rate in the world. Um, I don't think the evidence is persuasive about whether the United States has a higher incarceration rate than, rate than China or Russia. I think sometimes there's a hyperbolic rhetoric about that. But nevertheless, um, the United States does have a higher incarceration rate than, for example, Turkmenistan, you know, a Central Asian, central Asian country that according to Human Rights Watch is having one of the world's most repressive regimes. So this rate of imprisonment, this level of imprisonment was true before Trump. It's true now. It takes close to 5 million workers in the United States uh, to do the job of policing and guarding. Um, We we really don't know the cost of what it... I I try to figure out the cost, and there's an appendix in the book about that, but um, not easy to try to figure it out. Those numbers by themselves don't mean anything, but I think the numbers I'm going to give you now are more meaningful. Um, The United States has more criminal justice employees than teachers. The United States has more guards than doctors. Police outnumber social workers by 5 to 1. So that's more important, I think, than the numbers or actually the costs. It just shows you the the political social priorities of the country. In 1980, the United States invested three times more in welfare and food stamps than it did on on policing and prisons. And by 1996, this is before Trump becomes uh, president, that had been reversed, that three-to-one ratio had been reversed. And if you wonder what happened to the promise of a decent welfare state that the United States has never had, this is where I think it went. This was true before Trump. I think it's true now. So what do we get for this extraordinary investment of people, money, and resources? We don't get crime control, and we certainly don't get justice. A more accurate term for the criminal justice system might be the criminal injustice chaos. The so-called criminal justice system certainly has nothing to do with justice. Its injustices, I think, operate both internally and externally, and a lot is written and said and known about the internal injustices, less so about the external one. Internally, it means that if you have money and resources in the United States and you get arrested, for the most part, you can get out on bail, and if you wait trial, uh, out of jail, Uh, waiting for your trial and you have enough money for good lawyers, your chances of getting an acquittal or having a jury trial, which is very rare, is much more likely than the Overwhelming majority of people who go through the criminal justice system and are there, something like 60% of people who are arrested and due time in jail have not even been uh, convicted. They don't have money to get out on bail. Um, when you look at the occupations that work in, the criminal, in criminal justice agencies, about 95% of people work on the side of prosecution prosecutors police private police guards and so on and only five percent in any kind of nominal sense work on the other side which would be defense lawyers uh, probation officers parole officers so justice serves best those who can afford the best lawyers while the poor get overwhelmed public defenders for example there's a recent report out of louisiana that says that a public defender who works there has a caseload of 194 felony cases So, for those lawyers in the room here, you probably know that if you had a caseload of three felony cases to work on, that that would be a lot of work. More importantly, uh, injustice works externally, and it works this way. Baggy pants and a barbecue in the front yard can get you jail time if you live in a place like Ferguson, Missouri, while laundering profits for a Mexican cartel that was implicated in thousands and thousands of murders gets you a fine equivalent to four weeks of profits if you are the global bank HSBC. And you might remember James Comey, the FBI director who got fired famously by Trump, who spent all his life moving between um, the Attorney General's office and prosecutor jobs and then the FBI and so on, and wrote a rather self-serving memoir uh, in which he left out that important time... that important time in his career when he worked in the private sector, and one of the things he did in the private sector was to help HSBC recover its reputation for, from this case. Similarly, buying selling drugs on the street can get you a lot of time, and if Trump has his way, according to a recent speech he gave, it can get you the death penalty. But it only gets you probation if you're the executives of Purdue Pharma the company that triggered the opioid crisis by misinforming doctors and patients about the dangers of a drug that contributes to the death of about 145 people every day. And that company, Purdue Pharma, it's very much in the news now because through the Sackler Foundation it's given money everywhere. A lot of places in London, right? And all these all these art museums and universities are now trying to figure what to do with this blood, blood-soaked money that they got from the Really, the Purdue Pharma, which channeled the money through their foundation. So the person who helped Purdue Pharma with its public relations uh, crisis um, was Rudy Giuliani, Trump's current rather creepy mouthpiece. It's so rare to see a rich or famous person incarcerated in the United States that when it happens, it receives massive media attention. So if the American criminal justice system doesn't control crime and it doesn't dispense justice, then what does it do? So this is a big part of the book. The injustices of the U.S. criminal justice system are longstanding and by no means unique to the Trump administration or even his recent predecessors. There hasn't been a time, for example, in American history when there wasn't taken for granted institutionalized racism and class repression that confirms the widespread prejudice that people of color, immigrants, and the poor are the most criminal, the most dangerous, and the most deserving of ostracism and and distrust. A few examples. Probably the best-known example is what happened in um, in the South after the defeat of Reconstruction in the, from the 1970s on. 1870s on, I'm sorry, when millions of former slaves who had been freed um, during during the Civil War were criminalized by what were called the Black Codes. And the Black Codes basically um, said that any um, any person on the streets who didn't have a, a job or a permanent place of, of lodging could be arrested. Um, and that affected hundreds of thousands, possibly thousands, uh, millions uh, of African Americans who were in the South. This was long before the Great Migration to the North, long before People flee long before the big campaigns of lynching that start taking place. And then there were two systems by which they were uh, criminalized. One is that they were passed through the courts and then leased out to private operations, uh, ranches, mines, agricultural operations that had used slave labor. And then after that was reformed and changed, they were then... um, uh, they, were, they worked for the state on the uh, convict lease system or the chain gang system in which they uh, went out and built roads and built the infrastructure of the South and played a, a, a very important role in the economic reconstruction of the South after the defeat of Reconstruction. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's the best-known example. And so when people today uh, sort of hyperbolically talk in the United States about the United States has never had as much... Racism in the criminal justice system—it's, you know, it's more racist now than ever before. People have either a very short memory or don't know that history. I mean, there you're talking about—and there's good studies of this—people on um, convict lease systems or on chain gangs that they had death rates of up to 20, 25, and sometimes 30 percent of the of the prisoners in these systems died on the on, in in the job in the criminalized work. Um, um, so yes, they weren't in a prison because the South had very few prisons actually until the early 20th century but before that people were just uh, uh, in a sense the prison was sent out into the into the workplace. What's less known is that in the West the same, the same uh, process took place, you could call it the Red Codes, that Native peoples indigenous peoples who'd gone through a, um, who'd survived the genocide on the West Coast were then treated in the same way. People could be rounded up and criminalized and then Uh, Often sold, children were sold all over the state um, uh, as as a labor force. Uh, Men were less likely to be uh, captured and sold. They were more likely to be killed on site. And uh, women were then ended up in domestic service and also ended up um, being raped in households uh, throughout the state. Um, the children and grandchildren of that surviving population were sent to the Indian boarding schools you're probably familiar with the big campaigns going on in Canada uh, about um, restoration and, and, uh, and repayment and apologies and so on in the United States we've never really had that but the Indian boarding schools I think are an important part of the early prison history of the United States they tend to get separated out from prison history but the reservation on the boarding school in my mind was a carceral institution And the criminalization of free African Americans and the roundup and criminalization of Native Americans recalls what happened here in England between 1688 and 1820 when the rising capitalist class criminalized all kinds of new offenses against property, creating one of the most vicious criminal codes in Europe. It's what E.P. Thompson called a plain enough case of class robbery. He had a really great way with words. Back in the United States, in the wake of the gold rush, Mexicans were lynched at a rate comparable to the rate of uh, lynching of African Americans, something that's not widely known. While Chinese immigrants were herded into ghettos and sent to, many of them were sent to San Quentin as, quote, dope fiends. So today, if you walked into San Quentin, probably the best-known major prison in California, and you looked around, you would immediately notice... The black prisoners, the brown prisoners, there would be a disproportionate number of the people you would see there. But if you'd gone into San Quentin in the 1880s and looked around, you'd have seen Chinese prisoners, maybe one in five or one in four. In the 1900s, it was the Philippines, as I said, with the U.S. military rounding up without trial, hundreds of thousands of Filipinos, um, holding them in reconcentration camps. uh, And this is where they first tested the effectiveness of waterboarding as torture. I have a picture in the book never been published before uh, US military using waterboarding for the first time so it's practiced a long time before the Iraq war um, in the 1920s it was Mexicans who were targeted again as dope fiends during World War II of course you, many people know that 120,000 persons, persons of Japanese descent were imprisoned without trial for crimes they did not commit and after 9-11, in the name of fighting terrorism, the U.S. government rounded up and registered thousands of Muslim men in the United States, despite the fact that about three-quarters of all violent acts and killings done for political reasons are committed by white right-wing extremists who are not required to register. And from Obama to Trump, the government has detained and deported millions. And long before, African Americans were singled out for, quote, mass incarceration, a term that I'm not particularly favorable to, though I understand it's political uses long before they were singled out for mass incarceration in the prison boom in the 1980s they were already a majority of prisoners in several states and when Donald Trump conjures up images of wolf packs to describe young men of color as he's done he draws upon a long tradition of biological eugenics indeed it is as James Baldwin says a long tale to tell to sum up, Trump's ideas and policies about crime in the carceral state have a deep bipartisan pedigree. But to make sense, I think, of this long history of punishment uh, through policing and, and imprisonment in the name of criminal justice, I think it requires a wide lens as well as a deep history. Uh, I'm not sure that population control is the best term to define what the criminal justice system does, but I think it's closer to what the criminal justice system in the United s- does, States does. It's more accurate than the criminal justice system. Population control, I think, captures, is, is closer to what actually goes on. So Albert Woodfox, um, did more, the guy that did more than 40 years in solitary in Angola Prison in Louisiana, he writes in his book, he says, We were there in solitary not because of what we did. We were there because of who we were. I think this insight has broader implications. It is not only a long tale to tell of urban police, jails, and prisons. They have played and continue to play a critical role in maintaining inequality and continue to play a critical role uh, in trying to uh, enforce injustice in the United States and and public order. But police and prisons, I argue in the book, are part of what Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the Supreme Court Justice, in a remarkable dissent in a case a few years ago, called the carceral state, to get to be precise about it, she said the police, and I'm quoting her now, treat countless people as though they are not members of a democracy, but subjects of a carceral state just waiting to be cataloged. It's a very brilliant dissent, but also she makes it a very personal dissent, talking about her own attitudes and relationship about the history of racism. Um, so the term that I use in the book is "castle state A number of other people are beginning to use this term as well It's not my invention As a way to try to get away from the limits of using the term criminal justice system And the castle state when you look at its history I think is prolific and promiscuous in its scope and its operations And here we find that the, carceral, the work of, of the castle state Is carried out by a wide variety of agencies and organizations Beyond the police and prisons Consider the following examples So it was the military, National Guard, and private security forces that repressed the labor movement and tried to stop workers from joining unions in the late 19th and early 20th century. The earliest model for the professionalization of policing in the United States came from the private companies, and they were basically hired by businesses to go after the labor movement. When professionalization of policing begins in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, one model, one important model for that professionalization of policing are uh, the private um, uh, the private police operations that really work as vigilante operations, you know, like Pinkerton, Pinkertons, which still exists. It has another name now, and, and Burns. And it was U.S. officials in the military in the Philippines in the 1900s who tortured civilian pr- prisoners. And it was teachers during World War I who collaborated with the government in enforcing what was now the required pledge of allegiance that school children had to get up every morning uh, and pledge their allegiance to the United States of America. This is one of the early examples of the nationalist movement's successes in the United States. And it was also a way of trying to uh, stop people from expressing opposition to World War I or to having the United States join World War One. So one religious organization that was... Um, would not allow their kids to uh, say the pledge was the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, who um, their religious beliefs has their religion as taking a priority over civil government. So they told their children not to pledge allegiance. As a result, um, teachers in schools forced those children out of the schools and many Jehovah's Witnesses, I don't know the exact number, but were then uh, prosecuted and sent to prison for uh, telling their kids to do that. In the 20th century it was social workers professional organizations and middle-class reformers who led the child saving movement thank you for your plug before who led the child saving movement from the progressive era to the 1960s that resulted prior to World War II in the trial uh, in the in the conviction really without trial and imprisonment of uh, hundreds of thousands of children of immigrants and after World War II, targeted uh, predominantly um, kids of families of color, black kids in particular, who ended up filling the, re- filling the reformatories, that, uh, reformatories that operated very much like prisons, even though they were justified as being benevolent and saving children and it was public health workers social workers and government agencies that led campaigns during world war 1 to incarcerate without trial some 30,000 women accused of sexual independence and infecting troops with venereal disease while the men got treatment and entertainment in the in the uh, in the war camps and it was the same agencies that in the name of eugenics led the campaigns to sterilize without consent some 60,000 mostly white working class women before World War II, and after World War II, hundreds of thousands, maybe more, women of color, uh, women, mostly women of color, Puerto Rican, Native American, and African American for the most part. And it was local, state, and federal government agencies that implemented the purging of gay men from government jobs in the 1950s. With one in three men reporting in studies that were done in the early 60s, one in three gay men reporting incidents of repression, harassment, imprisonment, which is comparable to the experience today of young African-American men with the police. And again, it was social workers during the Clinton administration who enforced the purging of three million impoverished families from public welfare and subjected then and to this day, subjected women on welfare to surveillance practices and daily humiliations, treating them in the same way that police and jails treat poor young men as inherently criminal and not to be trusted. And it was national security agencies that, agencies that since 9-11 have made Muslims into suspects and made Mexicans into criminals and deportees and local governments that have legislated so-called civility codes, you know, clearing people off the streets um, that transform beggars on the homeless into criminals. So I argue that the castle state involves a whole set of institutions that plays a critical role in preserving and reproducing inequality and enforcing injustices. In a society of enormous wealth and extraordinary equality, you can take two paths. You can try to reduce that inequality and injustice, or you can beef up a muscular system of social control to keep things as they are. In the United States, they've consistently taken the second choice. So these examples confirm that the carceral state is routinely mobilized against whole populations on the basis of who they are, not on what they did or do. It operates as though the United States has a fixed quota of exclusion and repression that it must meet in order to maintain a sense of national identity. So that's the continuity. So what's new? Um, There's also, I think, some significant, dangerous, and ominous new developments in the United States. I don't think of Trumpism. Trump's version of law and order is not limited to the United States, as we well know. And I don't think it's simply a reversion to the past, some kind of nostalgic return to a previous era of the United States. And I certainly don't think it to be a revival of 1930s fascism. Um, a lot of people in the United States have not studied 1930s fascism and I think use that language of equating Trump's interest in fascism and spouting of fascist ideas as, as though we were living in that kind of system. Not that it couldn't happen, but it's, I think it's a really premature way of assessing what's happening. But what I do think is what is happening is that Trump's exercise of power is much more ruthless and direct, much less preoccupied with issues of legitimation and winning hearts and minds or serving as a model of freedom and democracy. From the Lyndon Johnson uh, presidency, From the Lyndon Johnson presidency to Barack Obama, um, uh, Republicans and Democrats alike, there's been a great deal of preoccupation about the use of the criminal justice system as not just an instrument of force, but also as an instrument of legitimation in the Gramscian sense of that. Uh, And they've constantly tried out different gambits for trying to make the police more accepted in communities in which they work, to make them more professional, to make them more likable. So in the 1950s, I think it, the, the priority was like um, giving, testing the police to try to weed out authoritarian personalities. That was the way that it was tried to be done then. And then it was increasing levels of education, recruiting cops of color, recruiting women cops, putting the cops through multicultural training in the United States. Um, the latest fad is getting the police to recognize their unconscious racism. I don't know if that's a, become something here in, in, in the UK. Um, and uh, again, James Baldwin, is, I think, is brilliant on this and brilliant on the police because he says, you know, there's no way that you can humanistically police a ghetto. I mean, once you decide to segregate populations, treat them as inferior and dangerous and send the cops in, asking them to be nice and likable it is it totally contradicts, contradicts what they're there to do. Um, and none of these things worked, but, that's, but it wasn't for lack of trying. So Obama set up task forces and commissions to try to figure out ways of doing that. He tried to reduce the amount of military equipment that went to police departments. He had the police to start wearing cameras, which became a nice little contract for one of the, um, I think it was maybe the Taser company that got the camera contract and so on. Um, And um, so there's been a a real long-time preoccupation with that. But Trump has made a break with that, um, and I think that's a significant break. Um, He's now seeking a military budget of $750 billion, which is more than the spending of the next seven countries combined. At home, we've seen ruthless uh, tax cuts and gutting of of, of environmental regulations. There's a toughness and resolve in putting the logic of law and order into practice that we haven't seen in a long time. And as David Bromwich, writing, I think, in the London Review of Books, uh, recently noted, he said Trump's narcissism and recklessness are wholly compatible with a cunning that we tend to underestimate. So let me now give a few brief examples of how the new hard line um, is taking form. So when Trump came to power, it was very difficult for him to be tougher on immigration than Obama. Um, Obama tried to do a deal. He was always trying to do deals. He had you know, a belief that you could sort of negotiate a deal between the center and the right, uh, all of which failed. But the deal around immigration went like this, that um, if Congress would pass legislation giving a path to citizenship, for the 800,000 plus people who came to the United States as children, undocumented with their parents, grandparents, and family members. And it wasn't like a soft path to citizenship. You know, it would actually weed out a lot of people because you had to either have a job or be in the military uh, or be in a university or, and not have a record. I mean, if you're impoverished in the United States and been living there a long time, it's pretty hard not to have a record. So it wasn't like this was like, you know, grant amnesty and give them citizenship overnight, and they had to prove that, etc., etc. And in exchange for that, Obama said, um, we'll be very tough on the border, we'll be very tough on cracking down on people who are here as immigrants who have committed crimes. And so Obama then detained, imprisoned, and deported more people than every previous president combined. I mean, he really he really got tough, setting up courts on the border so you could speed up the, the processing of people if they got across the border and either send them to prison or send them back across the border. If they tried a second time, then they went to prison in the United States, to federal prisons. Um, so um, I think the wall, the symbolism of the wall that Trump has emphasized is partly his way of trying to find some symbolic cultural way of promoting a policy that's tougher than Obama. It's been very difficult for him to find that. But the one place also um, where we, we're now beginning to see an increase in, uh, in arrests and detentions and deportations where the numbers are gonna, are beginning to go up to be comparable with what happened under Obama. But more significantly what's taking place is uh, research and reports are coming in that a lot of, um, a lot of people are, are internalizing the carceral state by limiting where they go. So we see a reduction in the number of uh, families and people of of Mexican origin, for example, going to church on Sunday. We see uh, people limiting the family occasions and celebrations that they go to. We see people going to hospitals only if there's a major emergency and dropping off the person that has the illness or the severe illness uh, and then leaving that person in the hospital as opposed to staying with the person, which they usually do. So in a sense, you could see the, you know, the carceral imagination has now uh, affected a lot of people. Um, it's estimated that something like 80% of all agricultural workers in California, for example, are undocumented. So that's, that's one change. The second change uh, d- uh, change is that, um, that through the Department of Justice, through his attorney generals, and through in particular the work of Vice President Pence, we see uh, a lot of tough measures quickly going into place around criminal justice issues or carceral issues. For those of you who have uh, wished for the um, impeachment and removal of uh, Trump, you might want to be careful about what you wish for. If we had President Pence in power, you would have a much more disciplined, white, uh, right-wing, evangelical, Christian, anti-feminist, anti-gay, people-hating president uh, who's been that throughout his political career. When he was in Congress, um, I don't know if you know this, but when he was in Congress, he, he actually um, um, petitioned for a bill that had gone through that would have denied birth control um, through doctors or through pharmacies uh, to women except to married women, that women who weren't married would not have been enabled to get birth control. I mean, that sort of gives you a, a sense of where his politics are. So he's been really the... Um, uh, he's been the hands-on practice man in a couple of areas that are really important. For example, um, uh, there is some talk about prison reform, and I'll come to that in a minute, but there's no talk of police reform. I mean, you, you can do a... You know, a Google search for police reform from the White House or Congress and so on, which was very big under Obama. Obama put a lot of energy into that, failed, but put a lot of political energy into it. That's disappeared, Um, ideas of reforming the police. And in fact, uh, Trump has been going to police conventions and giving them a green light for roughing up people, or as he puts it, you don't have to be nice to people when you arrest them. Um, Also, uh, Trump uh, undid Obama's executive order, which uh, reduced the amount of military hardware that can go to police. And then in the judicial level, we see now a stacking of the Supreme Court and the the federal appellate courts that we've not seen since the Nixon administration and will will no doubt exceed what Nixon was able to do. There's a massive stacking of... um, federal appellate courts and below that of uh, not just conservative jurists, but right-wing conservative jurists. And it would only take one more appointment of the Supreme Court to swing the Supreme Court for 10, 20 years. Um, So the other thing that Pence is very involved in and which people tend to uh, not pay enough attention to, though we're paying attention now because of what's happening in in Alabama, is that um, there's a lot of activism, right-wing activism, going on at the state level. Um, So we see um, many legislatures are passing anti-abortion bills. The most severe one was passed this week in Alabama, where 25 white white male Republican members of the Senate of Alabama made uh, abortion, um, sign of a fetal heartbeat, um, uh, a crime with the doctors who perform abortions going to prison and um, not excluding women who have been raped or subject to incest. Um, It's the most extreme version we've seen right now. But since 2010, at the state level, there have been about 420 anti-abortion pieces of legislation passed, and they're preparing the groundwork to go up to the Supreme Court to challenge Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade is very limited as well. It doesn't give women automatically the right to abortion. It gives women the right to abortion if their doctors agree with the decision and if there are abortion clinics available that you can go to and can afford to go to, and that's not available in many parts of the United States. Sure? Five Five more minutes. Okay, so prison reform maybe we'll come back to. The last thing that I'd emphasize then about, um, uh, the one thing I'd say about prison reform, it's being co-opted and taken over by the libertarian right, and if you want to talk about that, uh, we can come back and discuss it. The final thing that I think is important to look at in terms of Trump administration is that he's provided political space and encouragement to neo-fascist groups. So th- th- there's often been relationships in the United States between government and, and extreme right-wing groups. We saw it during World War I, during the um, the nationalist movement to go to war. Uh, we saw it, for example, in the 1950s in the Los Angeles Police Department when A thousand or more police officers belong to the right-wing John Birch Society and did so openly. Um, But in the last 10 or 20 years of um, of political government in the United States, that relationship has been um, covert. It's not been publicly recognized and encouraged. So under Trump, it's become much more respectable to be a white nationalist, to be homophobic, to be patriarchal, to express hatred of Muslims and so on. And that's been facilitated by an important part of Trump's political um, coalition, which is the leadership of police, sheriff, border patrol organizations, jail organizations, and so on, where the leadership, they're in the extreme right wing uh, of of politics. Rank-and-file cops and sheriffs are all over the political spectrum. They're conservative, but we're talking about right-wing ideologues at the leadership level. So um, having said all that, I'll conclude with what's to be done. Okay. Oh, my time is up. I'm sorry. Uh, um, So fascist ideas and tendencies are always uh, present, even inside democracies, as we've learned from Paul Gilroy. Uh, But I think it's premature to call the current moment fascism. I call the current moment um, one of authoritarian disorder. I think there are still many cracks in the system, and there are many fissures and many openings for doing all kinds of political work. The carceral state is by no means a coordinated system. It functions, in my mind, more like something out of Kafka than out of George Orwell. So I think one of the things that we have to do in this current moment, and this is what I've been trying to do in the book as a a way for the activist movement, hopefully to use it, is to do what Fannie Lou Hamer, the civil rights activist, called bring this thing out into the light. That is, look coldly and clearly at what's going on and what we're up against and uh, I think this is a very difficult challenging time and for those of us who work in the United States um, or in England as intellectuals I think there's some very hard challenging intellectual work to be done it's not clear you know exactly how things are unfolding The unfolding very quickly and I think the challenges for um, serious intellectual work are major but sort of a call to what we need to do in these times. And for those of us who work in criminology, sociology, law and society, and related fields in the United States, we need to both understand the complicity of our discipline in building and legitimating the carceral state and in challenging its current willful myopia, lack of morality, and timidity. Maybe we'll have some argument about that, but I'm sort of shocked by how the most of what goes on in the name of criminology continues. Um, in the face of like this moral, political, cultural, political crisis that we're facing. Um, For activists today, and there are many of us, I think we, we need to join efforts to alleviate human misery and provide services that are not provided by the government. We need to join efforts to implement important reforms in the carceral state and some examples from the U.S. that have been around for a long time that would make a difference if they went into practice are restoration of voting rights to the formerly incarcerated, elimination of cash bail, civilian review of police, restorative justice policies that are now a big thing here, and drastic reduction of the prison population to bring us in line with the United Nations and human rights standards. All of those ideas are are, you know, sensible proposals that would make a significant difference, um, and they've been on the they've been thought of as ideas for a long, long time. But we're a long, long way from seeing them become a possibility in the United States. In addition to that, we're engaged in the work of defense and resistance. That is trying to stop things getting worse, not just improve things, but trying to stop things getting worse such as efforts to reverse Roe versus Wade or expand incarceration via technology to give the cops more firepower and greater impunity to build new jails, which is a big thing going on right now. So all of these efforts are important and should be supported. At the same time, we should note they are not the same as substantial changes that challenge structures of inequality and injustice. And we can't blame only the carceral state and now the Trump administration for our problems. Splintering and divisions within our movements also profoundly weakens us. We too, often find to, we, we too often fail to find unity on the basis of what James Baldwin called the sorrow of the disconnected. Our challenge, I think, is to rebuild a social and political movement that will bridge the enormous divide between all the different activist movements currently in the United States. And I don't think we should give up on big ideas and structural reforms that would substantially make a difference in people's everyday lives and substantially alter relations of power and create new centers of democratic power, such as democratizing and demilitarizing policing, or asking the question, what are the police good for? There's a whole beginning of a movement in the United States to think about taking away a lot of the things that the police do and putting that work into communities and other agencies or to develop a humanistic welfare system that we've never had. And we never know when a spark would light, uh, light a fire and energize a movement. Let's remember that it was protests against the police killing in a small place like Ferguson that led to the Black Lives Matter movement becoming a national movement that compelled a meeting with the president. And it was a high school protest uh, for gun reform in Florida that prompted a former Supreme Court justice in the New York Times, no less, to call for the abolition of the Second Amendment. And finally, I think we need to learn from the right's effectiveness in promoting a dystopian vision of the future that anchors and propels its law and order policies. We need a comparable progressive vision. We keep saying this. In this moment of resistance and defense, in this era of a long and unstable interregnum, to articulate a vision of social justice might seem like pie in the sky and a waste of energy. But I think to get support for progressive policies, however modest, will require widespread endorsement and this will only happen if we speak to people's anxieties and aspirations. Without a movement and long-term vision that engages people, good policies wither. I think it will take an unprecedented project of coalition building, a revitalized imagination and reckoning with a historical legacy that bleeds into the present to make the criminalized human again and to end the tragedy of the punitive state. Beyond these walls walls that contain millions of our brothers and sisters, walls that divide us, walls that partition our ideas, and walls that cut us off from the past, sweet freedom still faintly calls. Thank you.